Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? I'm really excited to welcome John Galloway, head coach at Jacksonville University, to the Philosophy Podcast. John, welcome aboard. Really fired up to talk lacrosse with you. Uh, I appreciate you having me. I, this is my uh, this is my car ride in for most of early spring, so I uh, got to steal a lot of ideas. Hopefully, I can share some as well. Oh man, I can't wait to dig in. You know, it's I haven't done one in a while because once the season gets going, it's just hard to ask people for their time. And now that the season is officially over with the day after Memorial Day, hopefully I'll be able to get a bunch of good, uh, bunch of good speakers, but none better than you really fired up to talk. The Philosophy podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 coaches training program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Um, let's kick it off with just how I usually like to learn about you guys, you coaches, is, is talk about your, your coaching journey. Um, and, um, you know, I would love to start and have you tell us what it was like to play for Coach Nasser at West Genesee High School and what he meant to you and what you learned there. And we'll sort of start, start there if that's cool with you. Absolutely. You know, I was so fortunate to grow up in a program like West Tennessee where, uh, you know, I got to learn a lot about the, the value of being a good person. You know, I tell people all the time, I, I learned very little about lacrosse playing high school. I, I learned a lot about being on time, being disciplined, uh, showing up uh, early, showing up prepared. And those are the lessons that I take from West Tennessee. And, you know, I share people with the story all the time of, you know, I, I remember back when I was a kid and, you know, it was always like a goal of mine to make the varsity team. And, you know, I, I prided myself on making that team so badly that I refused to, to have gym class on the varsity field. I wouldn't go on the turf. It was a grass field back then, but I wouldn't step on that field until I was on the varsity team. And that's just how much it meant to play for that coach and that program in Camillus. And uh, when I finally did, I remember stepping on the grass for the first time thinking like, this is the greatest lacrosse moment of my career. And, you know, I look back to national championships and MLL championships and Team USA, and I still kind of think back to that moment. And, and that's really what Coach Massaro instilled. He, he instilled, a, you know, this just high respect for what we were building in Camillus and what he built. And, uh, you know, I was so fortunate enough to play for him, but it really starts with even in middle school, I, I almost looked at it as like a, a feeder program, right? When you made the middle school team with Rick Chapman, uh, I remember he made me run uh, Hills all practice one day because we got a, we got caught with helmets and gloves fighting in the locker room. And uh, I, I remember thinking, you know, this is, uh, this is the end of my life. Like, I can't believe I upset one of our coaches and I'm never going to play varsity. And that was just the, I guess, almost like a fear that you always had is that you were going to let those guys down. And they're still my mentors. Uh, Coach Macera is a guy that I think I'll always lean on, whether uh, personally on a phone call or, or, you know, seeing him face to face, but more so than anything, just thinking about when I become a father and a husband, all the things he taught me to be. And uh, I think those are the things that he's left in all of his players and that's why you see so many coaches from his branch and uh, I think that's why you see so many people respect what he's done over over his years. It's really incredible I mean how many years is he there 40 years? Yeah I think just just shy of 40 years yeah. 
40 years and, and, you know, you were probably, you know, what, 30 years into it when you came along, something like that. And you went on for another 10, but you had an awful lot of incredible people uh, precede you. What was it like to just have, you know, to be a part of like a program that is, you know, honestly revered uh, by everybody in the lacrosse world? Yeah, you know, I, I think back to one specific moment after we won the state championship my sophomore year. I was a fifth string goalie on that team, and uh, it felt like I had just won the Super Bowl. And at the end of winning the state championship, you get to run the Westcott Reservoir, and that's you know that's the irony of that program, right? The the the, the prize at the end of the rainbow is you get to run a hill. And you know, <laughs> the, the school bus pulled up to the hill, and there was fire trucks out there, and uh, we got out and we ran to the top of the hill, and all of the alums of that program were sitting at the top of the hill. And it was, you know, 50 years old all the way to guys that just graduated last year. And um, I think you, you found then how important it was to everybody. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, when I look back on my time there, I think more so about the moments at Shove Park where I was playing against Charlie Lockwood and Mike Zonetti in goal. And, you know, it was in ninth grade. And that was trying, kind of trial by fire. You got to play against the greats of that program. And you were supposed to live up to that as well. And the show of park for people that don't know, that was the summer program where you guys would play sort of a variation of what it was it box across or a variation of it. It was a variation. It was, it was five by five nets. So a little bit bigger nets and you wore full pads and uh, you know, it was a cement floor. And so it had much more of the field concept to it, but it was in a hockey arena. And uh, yeah, you played there from five o'clock to nine o'clock. There was a game every hour on the hour. And it went from, you know, when you started in middle school, teams would start playing. And as the hours went later, it got into the master's division, the grandmasters division. So you saw, you could sit there and watch a middle schooler. And then three hours later, you could watch a division one player from Syracuse. And then you could watch uh, you know, a 55 year old man kind of lug his equipment out there. So an amazing experience as a kid to grow up and watch that level of lacrosse. The five by five net is really interesting. I've used those a lot. I think it's like a great size of a goal actually for youth kids, but it's probably pretty awesome for you know, for that, because it, it allows you to kind of play like it's field, but it just makes it a, a significantly harder to score. Um, what was it like for the shooters? What is it like for you as a goalie? I mean, for me, I remember leaving with a lot of welts. I remember, uh, <laughs> you know, taking a beating in that league. But I think for the shooters, you know, I remember watching guys and how incredibly accurate they had to be to be a consistent scorer. And uh, what's cool, too, is, you know, a lot of long stick de defenders in high school, they don't play with a short stick ever. They don't see the value of that because they're so used to training with their pole. And watching some of our defenders have to pick up crown balls and just the skill set they developed in the indoor game, it was a... Uh, it was kind of, um, you know, ahead of its, its of the age where, you know, now every everyone talks about going up and playing box and trying to develop your game. Well, that wasn't really the thought process, but I think almost uh, accidentally it was happening, and that's why our skill level uh, at the high school level I thought was was a little bit higher than maybe some of the other teams in the area. Coach Vassar is kind of known as as being like a master of teaching the fundamentals and. Um, talking to guys like Bill Gleason, who I got to know pretty well when he worked for me at 3D, would talk about how, like, literally, you know, they would just do, you guys would do two-man and three-man passing, like, ad nauseum. You know, what was a typical practice at West Jenny like, if there is such a thing? Well, it's funny. It depends on where you were. You know, I remember growing up, uh, it, was, it was in the gym at 6 a.m. before class, and it was really three-man, two-ball. I mean, that is what we did ad nauseum. And once we made it out to the parking lot, and we played at the Camillus Pool parking lot where they could shovel the, the lot, and uh, we had to do three-weave until nobody had drops. And, and mind you, that was, you know, freshman to senior kids that were going to be on the freshman team that maybe just started playing or were just trying to play. And if anybody dropped the ball, you kept going. So it was a uh, you know, sub degree temperatures and, and you just had to, you had to run to the outlines to make sure that you weren't cheating the drill. And 
uh, it was it was so stick skill fundamentals teaching base that uh, you know it was kind of ingrained in us from an early age. Pretty uh, pretty amazing. Uh, you know the drill that everybody calls West Jenny, right? The three on two continuous. Is that even something that was done at West Jenny? You know, I joke. I, I saw that drill when I was in Oregon with Ryan Powell when I first got out of college, and I had no idea why they called it West Jenny. I had never done that drill, uh, maybe variations of it, but we certainly never did it when I was there. And uh, I was always curious where that came from. <laughs> okay, well, that's great because it's like a universal term. Let's do West <laughs> Jenny. And I just kind of had to ask. Yeah, uh, so I'm unaware. Then you moved on to Syracuse, as so many West Jenny guys did. Um, what was that like to be able to play? in your hometown and, and how similar or different is going from West Jenny to Syracuse? There's been so many, you know, incredible players, incredible teammates of yours, past guys, hall of famers, you name it, that have made that step. What was it like for you and, and how do you compare them? You know, there's a number of similarities. Obviously Kevin Donahue was the coach that I spent the most time with. He was my, my goalie coach. He coached our defense. He coached the man down and, you know, he was my seventh grade science teacher. So to have that relationship with your college coach was, was really special, but uh, an analogy I always use, especially when I was interviewing for this job, you know, I think that my greatest strength is the experience I had at West Tennessee when it was all about fundamentals and following rules and then transition to Syracuse when it was much more art over science. It was much more creativity and uh, freedom and, and not a lot of that discipline that I was used to at, at high school. So uh, while it was a totally different level of lacrosse, it was also a totally different way of teaching the game and, and teaching the person. And I think that those two experiences has, have made me much more well-rounded in terms of, yeah, I can be disciplined and I still have a West Tennessee mindset, but I also want to continue to embrace the Syracuse creativity and uh, enjoyment of the game. And it's something that Coach Simmons really uh, developed. And I think Coach Desco has done a good job of maintaining. I, I really believe, and I've talked about this on my podcast, so you've probably heard me say it, but I just believe Syracuse, you know, is, uh, has just done such an unbelievable job coaching over the years from Simmons through Desco, you know, Leland and Coach Donahue. And these guys are just, um, they're excellent at what they do. They just do it differently. They do it very low key and they seem to do it without much ego. Um, and it, there's not a lot of, you know, beating of the chest. They just kind of, go, they just do their thing. And every single year, you're looking at Syracuse and, and you're just like, I don't know, through the 90s, you had Bill Tierney, you know, with this incredibly disciplined system. And everybody talked about Syracuse, how they would, you know, just play this up and down. But at the end of the day, Syracuse plays, when you guys were winning championships and over the years, incredibly disciplined lacrosse. How do you do that with, you know, without having that hammer, you know, with, with sort of letting it evolve? I think the best way to explain it is when I first got to Duke my year out of, out of, uh, out of Syracuse, uh, we were practice planning and I had never done that before, obviously, but I was shocked. I was shocked at the detail that went into each drill and the explanation for it. And I thought back to Syracuse and I thought, well, man, we just did the same thing Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then Tuesday, Thursday was a smaller variation of that. And I think that that's the secret sauce at SU is that they believe in what they're doing. They do it at a consistent pace. They don't stray away from that. If things go bad or if things go well, they kind of stick to who they are. They, they, they are a, a up and down team, but within that, they're doing the same drills every day and building a sense of confidence in the players. I, I can tell you, I can count on one hand how many times I was yelled at Syracuse. Uh, certainly not how I coach. I'm a little bit more intense than that, but uh, I think I, I was allowed to play creatively and play loose because my coach never really came down on me. He kind of believed in us. He knew that we were doing those drills 
ad nauseum and it was becoming kind of second nature to us. So when game day came around, and I think that's what you see out of Syracuse teams, when things get tough, when things get tight, like they did in both of our national championship games, you kind of just fall back on what you've done every day for that entire year. And I think that's the special sauce that those guys have. As you mentioned, there's no ego. There's no uh, bravado in what they do. They just believe in who they are and they've done it for uh, gosh, this long. And yeah, they may not have had the past championships in the past couple of years, but I certainly don't think that's something that you can contribute to their coaching style and, and the amount they get out of their players. I agree. I mean, they've, you know, they've had great regular seasons and, and I feel like they've, you know, really done as much as they could with what they've had. Um, you talk about coach Donahue, he was your defensive coach, but now he's been coaching the offense now for the last five or six years. I mean, I, I don't know coach Donahue very well. I've, I've, I've talked to him on the phone a few times and picked his brain about, you know, what I call the Syracuse motion offense, that four, four midi rotation. Um, I, I, I feel like, and I talked to Kevin Rice a fair amount when, you know, when he was coaching with the Atlanta Blaze and, and, and Dylan was on the team also. So I got to pick those guys' brains about Coach Donahue. But, you know, here's a guy that coached the defense and won national championships. And I look at him as one of the finest offensive coaches out there. You know, what is it about this guy? And, you know, and to add to that, I thought he was the best goalie coach I've ever had. And he was also coaching the faceoffs, you know, and, uh, you know, one, and he was our man down coach. And I just think about our practices when things got, you know, a little bit more science than art, coach Donahue took over and that's where his strength is. He understands the game uh, at a really basic level and he knows how to teach it. And that's what helps those guys really take their game to the next level. I think of Kevin Rice and Dylan Donahue and uh, you put guys that skilled with some IQ in coach Donahue's kind of tool toolbox uh, you're gonna you're gonna find a very productive very consistent offense and uh, he's just a brilliant guy he's a science teacher by trade but uh, he I think he looks at it kind of like a lesson plan and understands how to implement it step by step to make sure the players get it and again he's I would argue the most brilliant coach I've ever had a chance to be around and I think he continues to evolve with the game which is probably his strongest attribute is uh, I think some people might see that staff as old school but if you're in Coach Donahue's office, you'll see how he's continued to evolve with the way that the game has changed as well. Yeah, it's really cool to hear that. Um, I think what is the the one the quote that Dylan or Kevin told me that um, from Coach Donahue is regarding dodging. The race begins when you want it to. Yeah, yeah. I think I that's one of the coolest that. quotes I've ever heard. Yeah, he's he gets it. He gets it on a on a different level than I think a player would. Now tell us a little bit about Coach Desco. I mean, this guy is like, I don't know him well. I mean, I've, I've kind of known him in the coaching ranks for 20 years and he's always super nice. Um, he's just pretty understated, you know, pretty mellow guy as far as face to face, but you just, you don't see him around all that much. You know, what, what's he like as a coach? You know, I, I didn't have a chance to interact with him a ton to be, to be fully transparent. I, I, and that's what's special about him. Again, I think he lets the guys play. He lets the guys figure it out on their own. Uh, I was a freshman goalie that probably shouldn't have been in cage as much as I was. And he never pulled me in all four years. He never took me out of a game. And uh, again, we've had conversations. I, I, I can count on one hand, you know, probably a couple of clearing passes I may have thrown that he wasn't thrilled about on the sideline, but he never uh, panicked. And that's again, I think an, a, a characteristic that you don't see until the end of the game. You know, you wonder where the emotion is, where the emotion is. And all of a sudden at the end of the game, he takes the huddle and you would think that it was like a practice and he just has this poise about him that has allowed the great players of Syracuse to be great. And he's been there for it all. You got to remember he's, he coached the Powell's, he coached the gates. He was on the offensive end and he found a way to manage 
all of those personalities and, and make them productive. And uh, I, I'm very lucky. I think that my personality with his, uh, it meshed so well. Again, we didn't, we didn't interact a ton, but when we did, it was, it was, uh, it was productive. It didn't waste a lot of language and it was uh, obviously successful enough to, to get us a lot of wins through my four years there. Yeah, really cool. And so then you transitioned um, from Syracuse to Duke as a volunteer. You alluded to this a little bit, but uh, what was it like going to Duke? Uh, what did you learn? You know, any great stories of, of those types of things we would love to hear? Oh, man, that, that year was the still to this day the best year of lacrosse I've ever experienced. I mean, I learned everything about coaching in that one year. Uh, again, I had an amazing experience as a player, uh, but I didn't learn how to coach the game. I didn't learn how to communicate until I got to Coach Janowski and, and you know, also Coach Caputo and Coach Gabs. Uh, I was spoiled for that year to, to really just be an understudy and watch those guys teach, watch those guys break the game down. Um, you know, I remember a lot of meetings where we sat in the in the conference room with coach D and you know we talked very little about lacrosse you know sometimes we would watch uh you know basketball highlights of some player and we would take two or three ideas it was so outside the box and he's so good at just breaking down the game you know from a not from a coach's standpoint but just from a, I think an athletic you know understanding why movements happen the way they do and uh, understanding the minds of our players and really trying to get inside their heads a little bit and understand what they're going through and he is so much more than a coach. And that's, that's why I fell in love with the position. I watched him change the lives of young men, you know, day in and day out outside of the lacrosse field. And uh, I, obviously I think most people think he's one of the best coaches right now. I think he is, uh, you know, here compared to everybody else. And I just am so lucky to have that experience with him. And then obviously having a chance to play with play for him uh, with team USA, I got to see all of those things come into light again and, and just how he was able to make a bunch of guys who don't really like each other end up loving each other in about two and a half weeks. And I think only he could have done that job the way that he did it. So his, his brilliance lies in his ability to understand people and bring them together. Yeah. You know, I, again, I didn't know where that came from and, and he did have a, uh, uh, you know, a, a background in being able to understand the psychology of this. And, and I ended up majoring in counseling when I was in, at Providence college and it was really motivated by coach Janowski. I, I wanted to understand how to communicate with kids and, he was so effective at being able to, to kind of poke the bear a little bit when it needed to be, but also to, you know, get to the underlying reasons why a kid was stressing out or having anxiety. And uh, that's, that's ultimately why we do what we do is to be able to help a kid four years from now say, man, I'm a better person. I'm a better uh, brother or son or, or boyfriend because of the experiences that I had. And I think that's what he does uh, infinitely better than anybody else I've been around. And Ronnie Caputo is uh, very similar to Coach Donahue as a guy that can coach both sides of the ball, knows so much, is so cutting edge with everything he does, skill-wise, defensively. Um, you know, uh, I would love to hear see your thoughts on that analogy. Yeah, he's a savant. I mean, he can do everything. And, you know, I had a chance to spend a lot. He was really my, I almost see him as like my, my dad when I was down there. He took care of me. I used to go over to his family's for dinner and just to be able to talk lacrosse with him. And he, you know, what's great about him is I think everybody sees him as this brilliant coach. He's really curious. He's always curious to know what the next step is or what we think of something. And I think that's what's made him so innovative. And, uh, you know, when I watch him coach the defense now, I see a lot of those pieces that he talked about when he was coaching the offense and he's able to apply it back to the defensive end. And uh, I almost get like excited watching Duke play defense just because I know how much time and effort uh, coach Caputo puts into it. And he, uh, he is also a guy that is the master of closed door meetings. You know, he knows how to bring a guy in, sit him down, 
break down the issues until, you know, you kind of figure out the underlying concern and then address it. And uh, I think that's why all of the players, if you listen to the Duke interviews, I listened to Cade Van Rapport the other day on his final interview and he obviously credits coach Janowski right away, but also points out coach Caputo. And I think he's just one of those assistant coaches that leaves a lasting impression on his players. It's pretty amazing when you watch Duke, I mean, they do things so consistently, you know, um, they've really kind of run the same offense now for, I don't know how many years, similar to Syracuse. I mean, um, but when you do that, it allows you to dive into the details, you know, and, and I would love to hear your take on what you learned about that from, from a player development and team development. And it's, you know, how they're developing. It seems like, you know, people always talk about fundamentals, but you know, I, I, I think their definition of fundamentals might be a little deeper because I, I really see the evolution of players during the course week to week, you know, you'll see these middies and all of a sudden it's like, wait, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that one before. And, and you kind of, they're on TV all the time. Right. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it goes back to the simplicity. You know, I think back to one story when we were uh, doing a clearing drill and Danny Wigreiser kept throwing the ball uh, to the box side and it was a simple thing, you know, yeah, I think we all kind of know, try to clear away from the box and coach Nowski stopped practice. And this is what he's willing to do. He's willing to invest the time in practice where I think a lot of coaches are trying to stay on a, on a clock to make sure that everybody understands that he made everybody sing a song and, and you know, and he, he imagine Rob Rotans and Dave Lawson and Jordan Wolf and everyone had to stop and put their stick down and he made them wave to the side and he made them sing away from the box. And I can always just remember that moment and, I, I thought back, this is so silly. I was 22 years old. I didn't know what was going on. And, you know, when you talk to those Duke guys, those are the things they remember, you know, and they, and Jordan Wolf will say it. Uh, Jordan Wolf used to step in the crease a lot. So coach Janowski, one practice made him walk around the crease 30 times and they called it the wolf den. And that was the, that was the area that Jordan wasn't allowed to go into. And, you know, those simple little reminders. And, and again, at nauseum made those guys really believe in the fundamentals. And that's why everybody talks about Duke getting better at the end of the year because he believes in that stuff and he never wavers from it. Even though he knows he wants to get to the next drill, he wants to progress to the next uh, offensive set. It doesn't matter if you don't double, double X the right way. It doesn't matter if you don't turn to the outside or clear away from the box. So those are the things that we're going to spend the meat of our time on. And then the intricacies, again, like you mentioned, they come from playing an offense at the consistent rate that they do. And that's why they're still great at what they do. Yeah. Really cool. The Phil Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com. Well, so then... You got your first uh, paid job. You followed Coach Gabrielli up to Providence, uh, which is my hometown, by the way. Oh, yeah. And um, tell me a little bit about what that experience was like as a coach. Now you had a lot more responsibility in, in everything, um, you know, probably having a side of the ball and recruiting and administration and all that. Yeah, it was unbelievable. You know, I, I went from sitting in, in Durham, you know, just watching these guys operate to all of a sudden I, I woke up and I was a 23-year-old defensive coordinator uh, trying to figure out how to defend the likes of Notre Dame and, and Denver. And uh, it was an amazing baptism, baptism under fire journey. And I always tell people now getting into coaching, the only way to do it is to, is to put your hands in it, uh, make mistakes, 
really learn from those mistakes and have a great boss. And I've been fortunate to always have a great boss. And Coach Gabs was, was exactly that. He let me make a ton of mistakes. He didn't, uh, you know, point the finger when we did struggle. And that allowed me to grow as a coach. And, uh, you know, Providence, it was, it was tough. I mean, we were, they were 0-13 the year before we got there. And our first year we went 8-8. Eight and eight. And I thought that that year kind of allowed us to take a deep breath and say, okay, we can do this. And I think Coach Gabs, just as much as, as me and Brett Holm, who's now at Brown, and we sat in that room and said, hey, we can figure this thing out. And over the next three years, I, I remember us really putting our heads together. And, you know, the fun part about that, people always say, well, you know, do you want to coach at Syracuse right away or Virginia or Duke? And I think coaching at a place like Providence College was the best way to learn how to be creative, how to figure out maybe a team that wasn't as talented as, as our opponent. Uh, how could we find a way to be competitive? And uh, we had so much fun in the, in the moments where we did find success. And I think sometimes that's often overlooked, but I remember, you know, winning the Fairfield game and that was a huge win for us. And coach Gabs coming in and smashing a plastic chair. And, and that was like a national championship moment, but it's because we had to work so hard uh, to find a way to put our guys in the right places to be successful. So those four years were so rewarding. I think that athletic department is set up for incredible success. And I think they have the right guy with Coach Gabs. And I think you saw this year, even though they came up short, uh, they have the right pieces in place to continue to build that thing. Awesome. And then, and then you, get your, uh, you get your break and you get to be a head lacrosse coach at, uh, at what, age 28? Yeah, I was 27 when I took this job. 27. So it's funny, you can prepare all you want it's like, but it's like being a parent. You can read all the books, but until you have kids, you have no idea. And it's the same thing, I think, as being the head lacrosse coach. What was that like for you? Uh, you know, I, I, it's funny. I was at the Islip Airport when I first got the job, and I, I ran into John Tillman in the bathroom. And uh, he told me, he said, listen, you, you'll be able to catch your breath in four or five years, but it's like drinking from a fire hose. And, you know, in my mind, I, I've played a lot of games. I've coached a lot of games. I was confident, and I thought, hey, I got this figured out. And uh, he couldn't have been more right. You know, it was drinking from a fire hose. And, you know, year one was let's be Duke. Let's be Duke in everything we do. And the first lesson I learned was no matter where you are, that's where you have to create your culture and identity. You can't coach like he's a Providence kid. You can't coach like he's a Duke kid. You have to coach the Jacksonville way. And that's what I learned in year two. And uh, we had infinitely more success when we realized that we don't need to coach these guys the way that we've been doing it everywhere else. We need to coach them to have their success. And, uh, you know, that's why I've gotten away from the word culture. I've tried to really focus on identity and really look at each team each year. And I think that's where we struggled a little bit this year is we wanted to be so much what we were in 2018 that I think we've tried to force that, you know, that round peg into a square hole. And now we're, we're looking at our personnel. We're looking at the type of people we have in our locker room and we have a really talented roster and it's about creating an identity on a year to year basis and not, thinking you know naively that each team's going to be the same and I think that's where I've grown as a coach infinitely and I, I continue to reflect this summer on what I could have done better and you know my ultimate litmus test now is as a head coach how many weddings do you get invited to and that for me is a, a way of saying I've made an impact on these guys lives and I don't know if we did a good enough job getting invited to weddings this past year and that's going to be something that we look in the mirror and have to answer every day next season. So when you get to take over the, when you take this job over and um, you're going to create an identity um, and you've, 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 you obviously have to work hard at creating that identity and, and, and you got to do that with your team because you can't create it for them. You have to create it with them and help, they have to help create it with you. Um, how do you go about doing that? Uh, it seems that um, 
everybody does it a different way. I'm sure it was very different from Syracuse to Duke to Providence to Jacksonville. Um, how are you doing it? I think the first thing we did was just measure who we have. You know, we looked at the kids, you know, last year, an exercise we did that I thought was incredibly impactful is we sat down and we looked at our roster and we looked at the high schools and we looked at the schools they came from and the coaches they played for and tried to figure out what made them tick. And, you know, when you start to look at a kid's background, you know, I think about me, my, my own experience, when you play at West Tennessee, you have this sense of discipline and uh, you want to be coached and you want to be coached fundamentally fundamentally and you know from a different region you, you may have a different experience so we really looked hard at the schools that our guys were coming from the regions they were coming from and then we took a step back and said okay what, what can we do to be successful what, what is our niche and uh, we found two or three things that we thought you know would be imp impactful for our guys and, and like you said it's not about what we want it's about what they're gonna they're gonna respond to and you know, we might not have 4.0 students, but we have guys that are going to earn their grades in the classroom. So when we came up with a Duval mission, which was our identity, it was, it was based on our region, where we live, and then it was based on four pillars. And, and again, we're not going to be always the most, uh, uh, we're not going to be Ivy League students. So in the classroom, we're not going to have a 4.0 GPA goal. Our goal is going to be earned. We're never going to cheat. Uh, we're going to maximize our potential. And, you know, when we talk about graduation, we're not going to be, you know, we're not going to be ready products, right? When we graduate, but we're going to be, we're going to be uh, prepared. We're going to be prepared to be fathers. We're going to be prepared to be great husbands. Uh, what are those values? How can we teach that? And how can we instill that in our guys? And we spend a ton of time now talking about things outside of lacrosse that we know in the back of our minds are going to translate to the field. And uh, I think that's certainly learned from Coach Janowski, all the exercises we do with Team USA, and then Coach Masser. Those are the, you know, kind of the stolen ideas that we've brought to our program to now really create something that our guys, when they come in the locker room, they're already talking about. Do you think that you learned a lot from these experiences with pro lacrosse and USA lacrosse about building a locker room that you wouldn't have learned had you not played at that level? Yeah, I, I can't even begin to think about the amount of ideas I stole from Coach Tierney, Coach Ample, and Coach Janowski. I mean, we nearly took every exercise from that. You know, little things like, you know, tell us something about a player that you thought you didn't like and now you really like. And, you know, we sat in, the, in our film room. Uh, gosh, it must have been after a tough loss to Towson. And we talked. We sat and talked. And uh, the guy said, you know, I really didn't think this guy was a – you know, I didn't think he was a good teammate. I thought he was kind of selfish. And now I've gotten to know him. I've gotten to know his family. And I think he's one of the best guys in our locker room. And I think, A, this the positive peer-to-peer -peer affirmation, as well as other guys in the locker room learning how to be vulnerable with one another. Uh, those things Coach Janowski, Coach Ample, Coach Tierney are incredibly good at. And that's, those are all ideas that we stole from, from being with USA and, and sitting in a circle in, in the middle of the Middle East in Israel and and a bunch of 28 to 32 year old men sharing stories and being vulnerable. And if we could do that, I knew our guys in our locker room could do that. So we kind of forced it on them at first, but now it's become kind of a, a norm in, in our facility. When you say being vulnerable, can you give me a couple examples of what you mean? Yeah. You know, uh, one of the exercises we did before a game is we asked each guy to stand up and tell us our biggest fear the next day. And uh, what we found was we have a lot of anxiety in our locker room, a lot of anxiety about not what's happening on the field, more so what happens when they come off the field, you know, what the response of the coaches is and the fear that they have of either letting one of us down or letting their parents down. And, you know, we, we made guys share that with one another and we learned a ton about, uh, you know, what are, what goes through our guys' minds on a day-to-day -day basis? It's very rarely wins and losses. Uh, it was amazing to hear from them and just understand that 
sometimes the pressure of their girlfriend being at the game or the pressure of uh, dad flying down and watching the game and then kind of getting the report at the end of the game about how they did. Uh, and it, it wears on them. You can see it in their face on game day. It became less fun for them to play. And what we've tried to do now is, as a coaching staff is realize we have to be their biggest advocates. You know, we are, our job is not to coach them on game day. It's to, to give them tools, to provide great advice. And then on game day, be cheerleaders, be their biggest fans. And if we can do that, we can empower our guys to be much more relaxed and, and thus much more successful. I want, to, I want to change gears a little bit um, and get back to Jacksonville. And I want to hear a little bit about your philosophy on, on player development, because to me, it's always been a passion. Um, I, I find it so interesting to watch what the best players in the world do and then figure out how you could teach that or how you could put them in an environment, better yet, where they would learn it. And I'm just curious to hear your opinions on that and how you do it at Jacksonville. Yeah, well, the first thing that we implemented that I think has been the most uh, productive for us is what we call Duval Hour. Duval Hour is an hour that we reserve on the field every day from 12 to 1 o'clock. Uh, coaches can be there if the players request it, but it's, a, it's essentially an optional individual session where the guys can go out and do whatever they'd like. Uh, and it's become a, a way of really encouraging guys to get rid of the, the hard-o concept. That's a word that's used in college lacrosse far too often. Uh, guys that go out and shoot are, are doing too much. And what we've done is create a platform where it's almost, I won't say it's expected, but it's almost like the, uh, the reality is you need to be out there if you want to start. And what we found is our, our top 15, 20 guys, they go every day at 12 o'clock. And what's nice is it's not full pads. It's not uh, required to be full contact. It, it could just be helmets and gloves. The guys love to go out there. You know, it's, it's beautiful out here. It's 70 degrees and sunny most days. And the guys love to go out with the speaker and uh, with a helmet and gloves like they did in high school and shoot around a little bit. So that hour has provided us a platform to talk with the players as opposed to in practice when you're running around trying to coach everybody it becomes really difficult so the guys that want to be coached individually and the guys that want to hear feedback personally we can bring out the ipads and break down the film with them and and do a drill that they choose as opposed to us making them do it so that is first and foremost uh what we have done in terms of our i guess our culture but our identity is duval hour is is really the expectation if you want to be great um, and then the other thing that we stole from this podcast is, you know, we started to make Tuesday competition days. So when we were struggling about halfway through the season and, uh, we had lost, just lost the Penn state and coming off that tough weekend, uh, we said, you know what, our guys don't know how to compete. And you know, the, the emotion wasn't what we had hoped it was in the locker room. And I think part of it is obviously all coaches have this high expectation every game, but we had to teach our guys how to compete on a fun scale. So what we did was on Tuesdays, we stopped practicing and we rolled out three games. Uh, one of them was with women's lacrosse sticks. We felt like our stick skills could be better. So we borrowed about 15 uh, women's sticks from our women's program, which we share our facility with. And we went out there and we played West Shenny drill with women's sticks. And the second game was speed lacrosse. Uh, Casey Powell was here our first year and had brought his speed kit. So we have a second game where it's just speed lacrosse. And uh, I'll admit that's where the coaches hang out and, and grab a stick and play as well. Uh, and the cool part is we get to be out there competing with them. You know, Coach Grinelli probably goes harder than anybody on our team. And I think our players saw that and, and thought, wow, so it is cool to go hard and to have fun with this and to talk a little trash. And then the third game is we just did a old school basketball, 4v4, take back uh, with a goalie in cage with tennis balls. And, you know, obviously it was a skill set of, of playing with you know, playing off ball and playing with a tennis ball to have soft hands. But more than anything, it was like playing basketball, playing pickup hoops. And, yeah. you know, again, it was a stolen idea from you guys, but it probably became 
the highlight of our guy's year on Tuesday afternoons. And so then we ended up giving him team names and started to keep score. And we had a prize after, at the end of everyone. And all of a sudden you started to see our compete level take it to the next level. And that's something that we'll implement right away in fall ball next year. So great. I mean, first of all, eliminating the, the, the word hardo. I mean, it's so painful to hear people talk about people that are working hard as if it's not cool because they don't want to have to work hard. So mm -hmm. that is a, it's, 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 it's a great call, but more importantly, it's just a great call to, to create a culture where kids want to go out and work hard and, um, you know, work on doing, you know, you're going to have to do some one, extra one-on-ones. You got to shoot on a goalie sometimes. I mean, there's just stuff you got to work on. So that's cool. And then as far as the, um, the competition, you know, it's, it's amazing that you actually did it because everybody always talks about it, but then sometimes it's like hard to do. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it shouldn't be, uh, but it's just for whatever reason, it kind of is. And it's just like, you know, to get back to the roots of that, it's fun to play and it's fun to compete and competition is, is what really what it's all about. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, you know, it was hard. I'll tell you, we played a, uh, SoCon semifinals on Thursday and we had a Tuesday practice and it's like one of those days where you feel like you need to be doing a, you know, intro implementation game plan, but we just felt like it would be wrong for us to, to steer away from what was giving us success at the end of the season. You know, we went, we got hot at the end of the year and obviously ran into a great high point team that game. But um, I think a big part of it was our young guys learning how to compete and have fun at the end of the year when season gets tough. Yeah. So cool. Um, so this weekend, unbelievable weekend of lacrosse in the final four, wasn't it? Unbelievable. And I usually don't watch because it hurts my heart to watch, especially as a coach now. But uh, I had to. I had to and really just impressed with what I saw. I bring it up because it's just so exciting to see the differences in the game with the shot clock. I, I, I feel like uh, obviously there's, you know, you got to be able to score 20 goals to win sometimes, although the championship game was a little bit more of a traditional grind it out type of a game. Um, but, um, I was just curious about your thoughts about how it's this year has maybe changed your thinking, um, and planning. I think even just watching film as a coach, you watch so much film during the season and a lot of your time is spent on the, on the alt fast forward button in sports code. And you're just trying to get to the next play or the next clip where you think there's value in adding to your team. And, uh, now you, you watch the whole game, you watch the whole film because you look at a subbing situation, then you look at what is a team doing in between 45 and 30 seconds to get organized? And then, and then you're watching 30 seconds of action. And it's changed the way that even coaches look at the game because it's more exciting for us. Uh, we're always in it. We're always in the moment. And um, it, takes, it also removes, the, I think, the gap of trying to, I think, probably even playing ta talent. I think the best, most prepared teams are going to have more success on game day. And, uh, you know, it takes away a little bit of the emphasis of the faceoff. So a team that might not be winning every draw doesn't feel like they're not going to see the ball again. It allows guys to play looser, more confident. Uh, and I think it's, it's made a huge positive impact on, on our, our sport. And I think it's going to continue to evolve each year as coaches figure it out. But ultimately, it's made it more fan-friendly and even more coach and player friendly. It's going to be amazing to see every single scoring record drop over the next few years. I mean, it's just insane. I remember playing when there was five poles. You know, the year before I got to college, I think it was nine, you know, then all of a sudden I, I graduate, they go to four poles and I'm like so pissed that I didn't get to play with like all these shorties. And, and yeah. now you're looking at the shot clock and, um, you know, what a fun way to play. Do you, do you find you have to play more people? Do you have to play more people? 
I found that we have to play more defensive midfielders. I think those guys get exhausted in between the lines and we were fortunate enough to start playing four guys, but when we weren't, uh, and everybody wanted to play transition early on. So we had this idea of keeping those guys on the field and a little subbing game and being creative in between the lines, but gosh, those guys get exhausted and it is, it's, it's stretch your bench, which again is good for our sport. There's so many guys watching and uh, to have more guys involved has been positive. When you think about things that you've learned as it relates to the shot clock, um, are there things that like you didn't really necessarily know coming in? Um, like for example, you know, at, at the end of a clock, pushing out, you know, pu pushing out on shorties and, and just don't make it easy for people to get the matchup they want to get, things like that. Yeah, I think it, you know, throughout the year you learn so much. I think it's really that 20-second window is where there was so much uh I guess, involvement from the coaches, you know, Richmond did a great job jumping into his own high point would go from zone to man, shutting off short six. And, you know, those are just two teams that were in our conference that I had a chance to see a lot of film of, but it's, it's challenged the players to be able to react. And I think it goes back to, you know, just competing and playing ball. You know, I think where we got jammed up in our last game is high point would shut off two short six and, and you want to run the game plan, but you know, that's a time to be creative. That's a time to kind of go off script from what you've been doing the first 60 seconds. And that's what I think is going to evolve with our players is that we got to give them the keys to the car and say, Hey, you know, if there's a roadblock, you got to find another route. And that's something that we have to do a better job of, of being enthusiastic about for our, especially our offense. It was amazing to watch the different offenses this year. Even if you just look in the final four, I spent a lot of time watching Penn State's offense this year. I really loved what they did. Obviously, their production was off the charts. And, but it was, it was interesting to look at the pieces that they had, you know, and, and, and how that's going to kind of impact, you know, other, other, other are people going to try to play a similar or style? Or do you feel like everybody is already kind of playing with, like, picks and mirrors and, 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 and really out of a 1-4 a lot? Well, no, I think, unfortunately, we had a chance to play against Penn State, and they're doing something above and beyond what others are doing. And I think that will continue to evolve to that level. When you have two or three guys that carry the ball, and you have a bunch of guys who buy in off ball, I think that's the biggest takeaway, even from my experience at the PLL, you know, watching training camp and being in the goal. You know, when you have guys off ball that stand around with a 52-second shot clock, there's not a lot of productivity. What Penn State was fantastic as having six guys, and that's one of our offensive tenets, but it's a lot easier to say it than it is to, to teach it and do it. Uh, they had six guys that were threats to score. And when you have six guys moving like that for 40, 50, 60 seconds, you're going to have the opportunities that they had. And, you know, obviously their skill level is fantastic, but I think a, a huge product of it was their buy-in off ball. Yeah, no doubt. It was interesting to watch the difference between them and Yale kind of played a similar, like, you know, dodge two-man game mirror, you know, hang-up game. Uh, and then you look at Virginia, and they were just kind of like power lacrosse, you know. They <laughs> played out of a two-two-two and would big little you know, all day. I mean, it's a great look, but it seems like you know to me, I was like, I don't know, I I can see why it works, you know, because they've got they got pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seems like a little on the stagnant side too. But they were able to grind it out and get it done. And it is cool to see that you can do it in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I think that's what you have to identify with your team. You know, Virginia is a group that individually can can pick on matchups. And if, you know, if you're playing a short stick long enough, if you're hedging long enough and throwing the ball forward to guys like Aiken and Moore and uh, Conrad, I mean, eventually you're going to make mistakes. And uh, I think that that's, that's what worked for them. You, you grinded them out, like you mentioned, and, and forced defenses to have to make great plays. Whereas you know, teams like us, we have to be more creative and we have to put our guys in positions to be attacking for 60 seconds. And I thought Penn State was a great sample study, case study for anybody who has one or two good players and four guys that buy in to have a ton of success.
Yeah, really cool. Well, let's transition a little bit to PLL. I mean, um, we were talking before the call got started that, you know, you're off to your first weekend of uh, PLL and it's, it's a grind. I mean, I, I find it really amazing that you can be a division one head coach and a pro player at that level. And it's just hardly enough time. You must have to not, you must not get much sleep. Uh, but, um, but how exciting is this? Is it? And share with us a little bit, you know, what it's like and, and your thoughts on all of it. Yeah, it's been an amazing experience thus far. You know, I was fortunate enough to spend the summer with Paul and having a chance to get to know him as a person and an entrepreneur. Uh, he is an amazing lacrosse player. I think he is, uh, head over heels, a better entrepreneur and businessman, just because he is so impressive, so intuitive, thoughtful, creative. Uh, he's got a team around him that is buying into the new age of sports and the new age of media. And uh, just spending three or four days at training camp last week and having a chance to, to see their social media team. And it's not something I'm comfortable with. I'm not good at the, the social media and the content production, but having a chance to be around them, I almost, you know, I almost realized, wow, you know, we all have to catch up as college coaches, as players, if we want our sport to grow like we say we do, we have to buy into this new age. And he's the one that's leading the forefront and also teaching us how to do it as well. So I think what you're going to see is a product that uh, excites people that haven't watched lacrosse. And that's what's unique about it is you're going to be excited to, you know, I had a, a, a microphone in my helmet and you're going to be able to hear me in the, in the game and be able to interview me mid game and, you know, to give players that type or give fans that type of access uh, from a off the field and on the field standpoint, I hope just brings in this new wave of, of really novice fans. You guys, so who's on your team? Dom's your coach. Now, he was my coach, okay? I've known Dom since <laughs> I was nine years old. I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, and, you know, listening to him, you know, listening to some of the sound bites, it's a great day in America, you know, and just like, you know, this is the, he's been saying that since the early 80s, okay? I mean, yeah. I've heard him say that every day, you know, when he was my coach back in, at, back in 86 through 89. But, um, but who else you got on the team? And uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, your group. Well, you're going to have to teach me any things that, that upset them. I'm trying to make sure to stay on his good side. But, uh, you know, our team is a, is a lot of Duke-Syracuse guys, which is cool for me and the experience I had being able to coach a lot of the guys, play with a lot of the guys, a lot of former Rattlers. But, you know, having Jordan Wolf at Axis obviously allows you to be dangerous every time you have the ball. And with a guy like Justin Gutterding at his flank, I think it's dangerous to see what that looks like. You add in Matt Donowski and Ned Karate on the offensive end, and all of a sudden you have that Duke connection that we saw with Team USA. And then pieces like Romar Dennis and Jordan McIntosh add a down-the-alley threat versus a kind of a Canadian wiggle dodge threat on the wing. So those guys are going to be incredibly impactful for us. And, and then Westberg, you know, being a guy on that low wing, uh, being able to get under and just having a chance to play against him, I know how valuable he is. And uh, in between the lines, I think Joel White's the best to do it. Uh, yeah, he's, he's my best friend and college roommate, but I think I could still say that unbiased that he's the best to do it at his position. And and on the defensive end, that's what we're trying to figure ourselves out, you know, with BJ Grill and, uh, you know, uh, John Lade down there, Mike Manley, but he has a lot of work commitments. And, you know, the kid Sabia for Penn State, you know, we had a chance to play against him. I'm excited to, to get him into the fold. And, and then I also think we have our best D midi in, in, the, in the country and Will Haas, you know, again, having a chance to play behind him. With USA, I saw how, how efficient he was. So we have a unique group, a lot of different pieces. I think we're kind of the probably the redhead stepchild in a lot of ways where we, we got yelled at for not being as social media friendly as the other team. So we got to step our game up there, but I know that our group is excited. And I, and I think that we're going to evolve probably the most from day one to the last day. And just in terms of our chemistry and our culture. It's pretty amazing when you look at the PLL in that, you know, there was, you know, it was obviously a shift from MLL to PLL, but there was also contraction, you know, from nine teams to six. And all of a sudden the depth, 
um, is just ridiculous. Um, and uh, just the level of play for that reason is, is going to be higher. Um, the same thing probably would happen in the MLL if they would have contracted that way. But really excited to sort of see this whole model work. Um, Boston's going to be a blast. Let's uh, switch gears one last time and just talk a little bit about recruiting. I always like to pick the brains of college coaches and hear about, you know, both your recruiting philosophy, you know, in sense of like kind of what you're looking for in the various positions and, and then, and then, and then maybe talk a little bit about advice you'd give to, uh, there are some parents that listen to this podcast and, you know, I, I feel like so many people are kind of barking up the wrong tree um, where they should really be working on trying to get better. Uh, mm -hmm. They tend to work on trying to get seen, but uh, I would love to hear initially, you know, your overall philosophy on recruiting and what you're looking for and how you do it. Yeah, again, I think it goes back to your program and your identity and what you're trying to, to build specifically at your institution. I, I think we spent way too much time trying to recruit guys that were maybe outside of our scope, but we're really talented. And, you know, we have to get guys that are D-middies. You know, I think that that's kind of a common theme, right? That you, you recruit a guy that's an offensive midfielder that might not be ready right away. We might have to recruit a D-middie at the high school level, but he likes doing that. He enjoys his role. Uh, we have to recruit attackmen that will ride because we're going to drop the ball. We're not going to be the most skilled team, but how hard do you fight after you drop the ball? And I think we have a couple guys coming in that embody that. And defensively, we're always going to be undersized. I don't believe in recruiting. I wish I could recruit a six foot five kid that moves well, but those guys are all playing uh, this past weekend. And we know that, and that's okay. Uh, but we have a young man, Jordan Young, who is five nine, but I think he has some of the best feet in the country. And, you know, arguably uh, one of the best freshmen, he was on all those rankings and all that. But what I see from him day in and day out is he has a chip on his shoulder. So I recruit young, uh, smaller defensemen that have a little bit of attitude. And I'm okay with playing man down a little bit as long as those guys have a little bit of fight into them. So each position is so unique. Uh, I think that we do cast a wider net than most programs ultimately to find the right pieces. So we're going to thin it out still. We're not going to just bring in anybody and everybody. And, um, you know, our philosophy is that there's no geographic region for us. We are in Florida because everybody wants to go to Florida. I, I say it to our coaches sometimes, everybody wants to go to Disney World. Let's get everybody to come to Jacksonville. And, you know, that's going to be our way of bringing in kids that may have been over, overlooked by some of the Blue Bloods or get kids that want to be part of the first championship team in, in the state of Florida. And uh, that's that's the I think the idea that we want to put in recruits' minds that you will be the first, you know, there's always going to be the Syracuses and the Dukes of the world, but be the first Jacksonville. And, and I hope that those are the type of people that we're bringing in. How do you, how do you characterize the way you play offense and how do you recruit for that? Uh, Skill set. You know, we, we don't get, again, same thing on the offensive, but we're not going to get a guy that, breaks down, a, you know, the Romar Dennis of the world that's going to be able to, to break down the first defender and get a shot off before the second defender gets there. So even our offense is predicated on eight to 10 yard passes where we can make a move, maybe just draw the attention of the defense, not the slide, and be able to let the ball do the work. So half cradle passing, the ability to get, to get the ball in and out of your stick while also going through your progressions. I think those smaller attackmen that have a little bit of a oomph to them, you know, are the guys that we're going to be able to have success with. And, and then also guys that I think buy into our system of being the second and third assist guy. And there's not going to be a ton of midfielders on our team that, again, run down the alley, shoot and score. We don't have that type of range or capability, but we do have a bunch of guys that are willing to, to draw the attention of the defense and let the ball do the work. And uh, that's our offensive tenets. You know, we, we believe in those things. And if you believe in our offensive tenets of, of being the CEO on the offensive end, which means just playing confidently, hitting singles instead of home runs. You know, we use the analogy, uh, uh, Barry Bonds had a, lo a lot of home runs, but Derek Jeter got all the girls. And Derek Jeter just hit singles. And that's how we're going to live, and we're going to continue to play on the offensive end. You mentioned a little bit earlier about, 
you know, the importance of off the ball players. How do you, you know, everybody wants off ball players, but how do you find them and, and, and how do you evaluate that and where you look Can you see it in club or do you have to see it in high school? Do you find it in box players? Yeah, I think you can see it in the club ball. I think you've, you've found teams now that have I designated off, off ball guys that work hard in the crease. And obviously the Canadian game has impacted us a ton and some type of some of the players we've brought in. And, you know, we have a, a young man, Bo Bohunter, who's from Six Nations that just kind of understands how to float inside. But, you know, what we do is we try to teach it because I do think the off ball uh, tendencies in the college game are a little bit different. And, you know, we teach emphasis in being able to create offense for someone else. So I think that's something Penn State does really well. When Jack Kelly cuts, he might not get the ball, but he opens up the lane for everybody else. So, you know, we, we term it gassing our cuts, but you know, everything you do is for the guy behind you. And sometimes the defense makes mistakes and you're lucky enough to score, but you have to be willing to kind of get an assist without ever touching the ball. And that's something that we try to teach a lot. Awesome. And then what would your advice be to uh, parents that are out there and they're kind of going through this process with, let's say, you know, ninth or 10th graders right now? Yeah, I, I try to tell parents all the time, and you're right, there's, there's, the focus needs to be on development, and thank God the rules have changed where the kid can sit back now in ninth or 10th grade and really enjoy the game of lacrosse and, and play in the backyard because he doesn't feel the need to go to a prospect day, but, uh, you know, what I tell parents all the time is don't choose the school based on if we see you or not. You know, we, we have a chance to go watch a lot of kids, but we probably see, I would say, 25% of the players that are available at the Division One level, and that's just because we don't have the, we have three coaches trying to cover the, the nation, so be willing to create your own profile, what type of school, what you're looking to study, the size, the geographic location, the, the coaching staff. I think that's got to be a factor always, even though they're not the deciding factor. Um, you know, obviously the litmus test is always, would you be happy there if you weren't playing lacrosse? But, you know, look at the 10 or 11 things that can narrow down your list. And, you know, there may only be four division one schools. And then you realize, well, I have to kind of widen my, my net and look at uh, the, the division two and division three. And that would make me happy if I had a, a pool of eight or nine to go visit. So I always tell the kids, yeah, we're recruiting you. But that's really after you recruit us and you identify us as a viable option. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and sharing all of your stories, your knowledge, your passion, and your enthusiasm for all of it. Um, best of luck uh, with the PLL Chrome, and uh, great best of luck with all your recruiting. I hope to see you around this summer. I appreciate it, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. All right, John. Take care. The Philacrosby Podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. There is no question that video is a critical part to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com today.